Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer Morning Commute, When and Why to Skip the Chemotherapy. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals and Sanofi Genzyme. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. This URL can be accessed in the episode notes. You can also find the complete three-part series by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC. Joining us today is Dr. Nair Visvi, who is the Price Family Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology Oncology at Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York City, and Dr. Sarah Goldberg, who is an Associate Professor of Medical Oncology at the Yale Cancer Center, Yale School of Medicine in New Haven. In this episode, Drs. Visvi and Goldberg discuss pdl one levels, do they matter? as well as choosing the best candidates for immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy not combined with chemotherapy, and they will also touch upon recognizing adverse events. I am your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Rizvi will begin our discussion. Welcome to podcast two, um, Skipping the Chemotherapy, uh, When and Why. My name is Naya Rizvi from Columbia University. I'm joined with Sarah Goldberg from Yale. And um, we touched on approaches to first-line treatment with um, immunotherapy and lung cancer in our first podcast, and we're going to delve into it a little bit more. And um, I think we very much established that um, you know PDL1 testing is um, important. The um, standard threshold that we use for deciding whether to consider pembrolizumab monotherapy versus pembrolizumab and chemotherapy in combination is a, a threshold of 50% um, expression on tumor cells. Um, it does get a little bit confusing for practitioners because different thresholds um, are used in different tumor types and some assays, some uh, require measuring both tumor and immune cells. Uh, for lung cancer, we um, keep it more simple and only measure PDL1 on tumor cells. Sarah, do you want to uh, discuss a little bit your workflow in terms of analyzing for PDL1 expression? Uh, does it matter where the sample came from? Does it matter when it was taken? Um, those sorts of logistic things when we um, send a sample off for PDL1 testing? Sure. So, PDL1 expression is absolutely critical to to know for patients with advanced lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer. Small cell is a different story, but for non-small cell, it it really is important. Um, The site of disease, I don't think matters. This has been looked at. It it shouldn't matter where you get the the test from. We actually just recently did a study looking at the brain versus other sites, and even that, the PD-L1 expression levels look similar. Sometimes with a small amount of tissue, it can be hard to do the testing. So FNAs can be challenging, but not impossible. Um, I know at Yale, um, our pathologists have looked at even doing the testing off of um, uh, cyto- uh, cytology specimens from effusions. And and I, I my understanding is that's not um, how the assay was developed. So it's not the kind of the, the FDA approved version of it, but they, they have validated that at here. So we can even get the testing done on 
on, um, on fluid samples, which I think is really helpful since a lot of times that's the way the diagnosis of metastatic disease is established. Um, so so the, the site of disease doesn't matter, although I have to say there are some cases where I've seen where, where there's been two samples tested and they can be different. <laughs> so what you do with that is, is not entirely clear. You know, I, I've seen cases where the lung is biopsied and a site of metastatic disease is biopsied and there, there can be differences. It's, you know, we, we talked about this before, there's, it's not a perfect assay, it can vary. Um, but generally speaking, I would say the site doesn't matter for where you get this, the tissue to do the testing. I think that the level of um, positivity is, of course, very important. And that's something that you know, I've seen different pathologists and companies report differently. You know, I've seen greater than or equal to 1%. And I've seen more specific, you know, someone will say 30% or 40%. Or um, I, I find that helpful to hear the exact percentage, although the, the categories we use of less than 1%, 1 to 49% and greater than or equal to 50%. Those are really the main categories, the main buckets that we, I think about for choosing therapy. But the, the nuances can be helpful too. It seems that there's some, some recent work looking at even, you know, particularly high PDL1, you know, 80, 90, 100% is even more predictive for benefit from immune therapy. So I, I like to see the specific numbers when possible, but really it's those, those three categories that are, are, are useful for testing, for understanding how to treat patients. Right. So I think that um, the, the data that you're um, speaking to, there's really two data sets. One was uh, a retrospective analysis of pembrolizumab-treated um, lung cancer patients and more recently um, data from a phase three trial uh, comparing semiplumab with chemotherapy uh, in more than 50% pd one expression, which was um, also a positive trial um, and semiplumab um, potentially will be an additional agent approved as first-line treatment in um, lung cancer in pd one more than 50%. And both of them showed that, you know, if you have a um, 90% um, or greater pd one score, um, your response rate, uh, as well as outcomes in terms of um, PFS, um, um, were actually um, quite a bit better than if you're 50 to 60% um, and the um, semiplumab analysis also showed that the depth of your response in terms of the magnitude of tumor size reduction was uh, greater in the uh, 90% or greater uh, groups versus the 50 to 60% group. And I think it does provide some help to us when we think about selecting patients for pembrolizumab monotherapy versus pembrolizumab with chemotherapy. You know, if somebody has a PDL1 score of 50% and you're kind of on the fence in terms of their disease burden, whether they should get chemo or monotherapy, maybe you're more inclined to give them a chemotherapy combination with pembrolizumab if you're nervous about um, how likely they are to get in trouble um, from their cancer versus if they have a PDL1 90% or 100%, then you may have a little bit more. Um, you know, reassurance in terms of, um, you know, pembrolizumab monotherapy. Sarah, I mean, what other clinical or other features do you think about, you know, when we try to choose patients for pembrolizumab monotherapy versus pembrolizumab with chemotherapy? We talked a little bit about the absolute level of pdl one score, um, how symptomatic the patients are, how much disease burden they have. Are there other things that you look at? Yeah, I think those are really the, the main ones. You know, the, the greater than 50% uh, PDL1 patients, I typically will give single agent immune therapy to. Um, I think most people, I think if they have 
not nothing, no, no critical uh, areas of disease or, or significant symptoms. I think those patients really can typically have a trial of single agent and avoid the side effects and 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 other things with the chemotherapy. So for the most part, I'm treating my greater than 50% patients with single agent. Um, like you were saying, if a patient is very symptomatic, if I think they 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 really need a response, the response rate does go up with um, adding chemotherapy. So even in the greater than 50% PDL1 patients, I, I might consider adding chemotherapy to those individuals. In the the one to uh, 49% PDL1 patients, I usually don't use single agent. So those those patients, even though pembrolizumab is approved for for PDL1 greater than or equal to 1%. I, I think that the, those patients probably have more benefit from combination therapy. They can they can um, absolutely respond to single agent. I just you know I, with lung cancer sometimes you don't get a chance for a second line therapy, and so I, I will typically give those patients combination therapy. Um, the PDL one the specific PDL one level sometimes sways me in that direction or in that in that category as well. You know if if someone's maybe borderline for chemotherapy in terms of performance status, or they really don't want chemotherapy and they have a PDL one closer to 50%, you know, 30, 40%, I might feel more comfortable with uh, with giving single agent. But those patients I typically want to give combination to. And then there's the less than 1% where I really would typically always think about giving combination with chemotherapy based on much lower response rates with single agents uh, in the, the less than 1% PDL one patients. Yeah, I, I agree. I have to say there are some patients with the 1% to 49% group that I have given IO-only therapy to if they, you know, have limited disease burden, they're not likely to get into any major trouble um, over the next couple of months while I wait and see if it works, um, if they're a little bit more frail and, you know, I think was a little nervous about them tolerating it. So Although I agree with you, most patients I, I, I think um, you know can tolerate the, the the chemotherapy combinations pretty well. There's trials now comparing those those regimens, uh, you know, single agent Pembro versus chemo Pembro in really any PDL1 expression level. So we really don't know what what the best strategy is. But I think until we know more from the from the data from the, the clinical trials that are ongoing, that that's typically my strategy is single agent when I can get think I can get away with it in, in the high PDL1. Um, in combination for people I'm worried about in terms of disease burden and, and or symptom burden and and then the, the lower PDL ones as well. So last year we also had uh, the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab approved in the PDL one one percent or greater group. I know Yale has worked a lot with the ipinevo combination over the years. Um, your thoughts on this approval, how you're incorporating into your sort of treatment paradigm for our patients? So as you said, we, we have a lot of experience at Yale with, with this combination. I know you do too. Um, so I've treated many patients with um, Ipinevo um, on clinical trials. You know, I, I think you can look at the toxicity data from the trials and it, it actually doesn't look all that different if you just look at the overall frequency of toxicities. But in my experience, it can be difficult for patients. Um, I think the almost like the duration of toxicity can be challenging and the need for, for more long-term steroid use is, is something that is a real, a real issue for some patients. So I, I am cautious with selecting um, Ipinevo for patients because of the risk of toxicity. So it's approved now for PD-L1, uh, 1% or greater. 
Um, it's absolutely a consideration. It's it's an active regimen. The, the, the clinical trial that you were referring to compared to chemotherapy alone, it, it clearly has an improvement in survival. I think really interestingly, even in the less than 1% pdl one patients, it, it has a, an improvement in survival, although it hasn't been approved for that by the FDA yet. So um, that's, that's not technically an FDA-approved regimen in the less than 1%, but it still, I think, could be considered. I actually, I'm not sure how I'm going to be fitting it into my treatment algorithm. I think the easy thing to say is for patients who don't want chemotherapy, but I think single agent immune therapy is like unlikely to work. So, you know, in the, the less than 1% patients who say, there's no way I'm getting chemotherapy, even the one to 49 who say, I don't want chemo. I think that, that that's, I think, an, an easy way to say, well, if they don't want chemo and I'm worried that single agent immune therapy isn't going to work, it's, I think it's a really good strategy. That's not all that fair. I think it still doesn't um, entirely say what, what the ideal place for it is. And I think hopefully we're going to be getting some trials that compare these different regimens and we'll be able to understand better or biomarkers that help us decide when to use the different combinations is, is uh, that will be, I think, very important to really picking the right treatment for patients. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I mean, as, as you said, um, the hazard ratio actually in the... Um, PDL one less than one percent group was um, really as good as the more than one percent group. Uh, unfortunately, as the approval is not that setting, but um, you know, I think that that would be a great population that you know where you want to choose something that's chemotherapy sparing, and uh, you you know we don't know what Pembro monotherapy would do in that population because we just really don't have randomized data in the PDL one zero patients. But I think Epinevo is a good a good option. I, I you know ideally we'd like to see some randomized data comparing PD one or versus PD one and CTLA four. We do have some early data um, around that with um, the phase three trial um, uh, looking at pembrolizumab versus pembrolizumab and ipilimumab, which um, was uh, reportedly a negative trial, and this was in the more than 50% group, um, although that was just sort of a press release, and we actually we haven't seen the actual data around that. But uh, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of um, trials that are that are ongoing. Remember to visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC2 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Let's rejoin our discussion as Drs. Rizvi and Goldberg discuss immune-related adverse events and how to manage them. You know, when we use Pembro and, and Ipinevo or any of these IO therapies, um, you know, I think immune-related adverse events is um, really um, important. I think that one of the challenges with immune-related adverse events is they don't occur in a, in a predictable fashion in terms of timelines. You know, we've had patients that developed massive transaminitis after being on PD-1 therapy for a year, and, you know, they were completely fine before then. It's also interesting that when you treat these side effects often um, and you resume immune checkpoint blockade, they don't always recur. Um, I think that there's two camps really of toxicities, you know, one, which is the new, the bad pneumonitis or nephritis, you know, where um, you totally have to stop therapy and you're actually pretty nervous about going back to it. And then there's the other sort of area where patients have sort of chronic low grade, you know, rash, pruritus, myalgias, arthralgias, which can be really affect patients' quality of life. Do you want to talk a little bit how you think about these sort of uh, more low grade, but persistent toxicities and how you manage those situations? I totally agree with what you're saying. The, 
some of these side effects are actually pretty common, you know, rash, pruritus, those I would say frequent in, in my experience. And if you look at the trial data, um, it, it's common to have those. Typically they're low grade. I have seen some really severe rashes, um, but you're right. They can be really bothersome to patients. Um, and so we have a dermatologist we work really closely with and he's, He's kind of become an expert in treating all of the things we do to patients and all the problems we cause. Um, and, and he can be, you know, he's, his expertise is really helpful in, in some of the more refractory cases or, or severe cases of, of skin toxicity. The joint issues is, I think, actually really interesting. Um, it's one of the, I think maybe the only toxicity, you'll see if you, if you have other, other ideas on this, but the, really the only toxicity where you could sometimes get away with a really low dose of prednisone and it's really effective in treating those joint toxicity. Um, which, which can be debilitating for patients. But even, you know, five, 10 milligrams of prednisone can be really effective in, with um, arthritis from immune therapy. And then I've, I've had cases where I've put them on a tiny dose of prednisone, they do better, and then I keep them on these low doses and continue the therapy, continue the immune therapy, and they do very well. I think the interesting thing about these side effects is that in some cases we have to stop <laughs> because you know, either they're, they're intolerable or, or, or severe. But, um, you know, I think in a lot of cases we can continue with treatment and then it's just a matter of, of uh, making, you know, do, using the, the supportive care to make the treatments more tolerable because ideally we want people to be on these long term. But, you know, in, in the more severe cases um, or the intolerable cases, I think there's good evidence that even with stopping treatment, patients can have really durable benefit. Um, so, in, you know, I've had patients with severe transaminitis and pneumonitis and even after just a dose or two of treatment, especially when you use combination therapy like Ipinevo, and stopping treatment um, and, and not even resuming it can be really, uh, you know, you could still have really long-term responses. So it's very dependent on how severe the toxicity is, how, how the person's doing, how, you know, how frail they are, how much you think they could potentially tolerate recurrence of one of these toxicities. But I don't, I don't feel all that bad when I have to stop and I can't and I just, you know, not, I just said not to reintroduce it, at least not immediately, um, because sometimes these responses can keep going for a long time afterwards. Um, if the disease recurs, that's another discussion, you know, is it worth reintroducing it then? But um, it's different than chemotherapy where, you know, you think they have to be on something, um, at least when they've only gotten a dose or two. With immune therapy, sometimes these, these responses can go on and, and giving them a break to recover is, is really important. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously the patients that do have these sort of significant autoimmune reactions, you're also really turning on the T cells in a major way against uh, the cancer as well. And so uh, potentially they have sufficient T cell activation, sufficient memory T cells that they can uh, continue to respond. My favorite case of that is a patient who got one dose of pembrolizumab developed uh, severe type 1 diabetes, insulin dependent for the rest of his life. Um, but his bone metastasis disappeared and he's now out four years later with no evidence of cancer after that one dose of pembrolizumab and, you know. I have a similar patient who has small cell lung cancer and I gave her one dose of Ipinevo, same thing, type 1 diabetes. She said, I'm never doing this again. And it's two years later with small cell and she hasn't needed it. Right. So I have it's amazing how even just one dose can, can be so effective. Is there anyone with lung cancer that you wouldn't give immunotherapy for? I know a lot of the initial clinical trials excluded patients with rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease, auto, other autoimmune diseases. You know, I think that there's been sort of additional sort of retrospective analysis to show that patients who have um, 
some of these conditions, you know, may actually do well with immunotherapy and they're not necessarily going to flare their disease. And probably there's a 50-50 chance that they're going to flare their disease, but it's usually manageable. Um, so I think we've increased our comfort in, ta- in treating these patients. Is that your experience as well, Sarah? Absolutely. So you know, the trials didn't really let us treat any of these um, uh, autoimmune conditions, uh, except for some of them allowed the distant history of autoimmune conditions or more mild things like um, vitiligo, things like that. But um, but now that we, we have the ability to use the, these drugs um, in standard care, it's really a discussion of, of risks and benefits with the patients. As we've had now several years of using these off trial, I've had you know, many experiences treating patients with autoimmune disease with immune therapy. Their disease can flare, and so it has to be a, a discussion um, with the patient that that absolutely could happen. They can have flare of their underlying condition or or another autoimmune condition. And so, um, you know, I've had patients when I tell them that say, "There's if you cause my whatever it is ulcerative colitis to flare, it's not worth it for me. I don't. I, there's no way I want that. I've had terrible ulcerative colitis. I'm not going there." But most of the time, I think patients say, "You know, if it flares and we can usually deal with it, let's let's give it a try." Um, and so we are now, I think we've gotten good experience with how to treat these toxicities, um, typically with, with corticosteroids, but sometimes additional immune suppressants. Um, a lot of times we need to do this in collaboration with a, a specialist in the area that their autoimmune disease is in, whether it's GI or pulmonary, whatever it is. Um, but I think as long as there is understanding from the patient of the risks and benefits, and there is kind of a good game plan in place of what, you know, if, the, if there's a flare, what the plan will be with the specialist, I, I think it's very reasonable to at least consider there's probably a couple of situations where I wouldn't go there. You know, the, the really severe neurologic autoimmune diseases, I, I would be probably pretty hesitant. You really don't want some of those to flare. I have treated some people with, with MS before and actually have done okay, although it is concerning. Um, absolutely want to do that in collaboration with a neurologist. One other thing that comes up a lot is patients who've had transplants. I think if you can live without the organ that was transplanted and the patient knows that they might lose it, I think it's reasonable to consider. So the main example of that is a, a kidney transplant, um, since there is a risk of, of losing the organ. But I think other other transplanted organs, I, I, I wouldn't go there with uh, using right. immunotherapy, with risking losing someone's you know, heart transplant or liver. Those are you know important organs. Um, so so I, I wouldn't, although they, there's some reports in the literature about those, I don't think that that's typically worth risking. What about interstitial uh, lung disease? Yeah, so this comes up when we talk about these types of uh, patients a lot of times in our, our, our tumor board, you know, what what to do about them. I think it's variable. There are some patients with pretty mild ILD. You know, I feel like more often than not, it's something that's called on imaging or, you know, maybe some mild symptoms but we haven't needed treatment. And so I think it's probably worth treating those patients. And, and I've done that with patients and, and they've done fine really severe ILD, I might have more concerns about. That's another, I think, discussion of risk benefit. Yeah, I think the risk benefit is 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 key. I mean, I have a patient now who has interstitial lung disease and, you know, she's chronically on, you know, some 10 to 15 milligrams of prednisone and, um, um, you know, so it's moderately severe disease and she's, but she is on second line chemotherapy now. In this case, um, you know, the, the biomarker data was useful. I mean, her PDL one was around 50, 60% in, in that range. And, but her, her TMB was actually over 20 mutations per megabase as well. You know, it's always good to have more biomarker data because you can really weigh the pros and cons. You know, we know that there's a very good chance 
that it'll help her. And it's when do you take the risk and move off of um, chemotherapy to, to do that is, is uh, not always an easy decision. Yeah, you know, I think you're bringing up a good point, which is that I, I don't, when, when in someone with a more severe autoimmune disease, um, I typically don't use it first line. I don't know that there's a, necessarily a great reason for that, but I think if you can give someone more time without flare of their severe, you know, underlying disease, I think, um, I think that might be a good strategy. So it sounds like you're doing the same thing. I typically start with chemotherapy um, alone in those patients, and then we'll think about using it in a later line of therapy. Agreed. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Sarah, and um, thank you um, for listening, and um, we'll end it here. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to go to morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC2 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. If you have missed any of our episodes or would like to listen to them again, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC to find a listing of all three podcasts.